is Simply Focus with Elvis Chani and Dominic Gouda for Live and Joyandi. Are you ready for this new episode? Then please welcome your hosts, Elfie Cherney and Dominic Godat. Welcome back everyone. Hi there. This is episode number 35 and we are sitting here in the living room of Gail Miller. Hi Gail. Hello. And we're very happy that you are with us today or we are with you today and can talk about all the things that fascinates you about solution focus and all things that happened over the years and we're very grateful that we can be here. We are grateful and delighted to be here as you influenced our work and what we did a lot and we just talked about the CD where you talked with Steve DeShazer about emotions and how that influenced us and we're happy to go there later. We're delighted to be here as we know you were a very important part in developing this approach and yeah we met you at the EBTA conference in Vienna and had there a little chat about what happened behind the mirror and we're just excited to touch all these topics in our conversation today. You're so sorry. Yes. You were a research professor at Marquette University and you were observer and listener. <laughs> and that's what we're very interested in hearing, how you observed, how you listened and how that might be influential, still very important today. So to start with, what fascinates you with solution focus or what has fascinated you with solution focus? That's not the sort of question that I would ask myself. So I'll have to go around it. Because the short answer is that there really isn't anything about solution-focused practice that's fascinating to me. It's fascinating in the sense that it's different than any other language. Because I'm interested in language. And language, anybody's use of language, is fascinating. Especially language in institutional settings. So just before I started at BFTC, I was doing a study of a, a program we call a welfare to work as people who were unemployed and getting government benefits but were required to look for jobs. And I spent a year there and it was very different than solution focused. It was very accusatory, very demanding. There's a lot of interest in catching people who were breaking the rules and punishing them. But it was fascinating because they had to do something with words in order to do their jobs. And that's really all I've been interested in. How do people do their jobs by using words? And then those words become a logic of a sort that's connected to actions. That action might be making the case for terminating you and your family from getting any benefits from the government. It might be any number of things. And I've done a lot of studies like that that are unconnected to solution-focused therapy, one with doctors at the medical school and their patients and so on, and others. So in that sense, this is sort of a continuation of a normal thing. The intriguing part of when I first went there was the extent of problem-solving talk, because they were still doing, well, Steve called it ecosystemic therapy. They were still doing a therapy that was very, very much connected to the Palo Alto group. And they wanted to understand the problem in a certain way, not necessarily the problem with capital T-H-E, but a problem in a way that would allow them to intervene and to do something. So there's a lot of talk about what's the problem and about what do we want the problem to be. That was back in 84. That would be 84, 85. Yeah. And so they had categories of clients and they would use those categories if they could. It didn't apply to everybody. I've forgotten a lot of them. There was one called a fog and I think it was the person thinks they understand 
their problem, but they don't. And then there was a double, I think double fog, where neither person understands. Both people think they understand and they don't, and so on. And then they would spend lots and lots of time figuring out clever interventions that could get people to fix their problems. So they were problem solvers. And in that sense, it was fascinating in a different way than the other studies that I had done. Like the people in the welfare office, they did their version of this, but they're much less sophisticated. And their interventions were much less creative because they could just order people. (laughs) Do this or. So in that sense, it was fascinating as these clever people would do all of these clever tricks and with paradoxes and all of this stuff. And then I went away for a while. And when I came back, it was clear that they were doing something different. And it was eventually it became solution focused therapy. And in that sense, it was fascinating, but not as much fun (laughs) simply because of the simplicity. They weren't doing what they were doing before, but they also weren't doing what the welfare people were doing. You know, they weren't diagnosing, in quotes, diagnosing problems. They were talking about interventions in a fashion, but that dropped away over time and it became less and less important. So, Gail, how much time was between this time where you were there first and then you came back and it was like more solution focused? I left in 85 or 86 and I came back in 89. So in that stretch in there. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that it wasn't a break. It was an evolution because if you look at some of the things that happened early on in 89-90, in some respects, the so-called new techniques were evolutions of... People made a big deal out of the miracle question, but, you know, they asked a uh, crystal ball question before and they're different. I don't want to suggest that they're just the same thing, but they're very similar in many respects as well. And so it would make sense that somebody who is thinking in terms of imagining in the future, looking at crystal balls might also be open to the idea of imagining the future by talking about miracles. Uh, But then over time, it got more and more simple. You told us the story at the EBTA in Vienna already that it was much more interesting with this ecosystemic approach, especially interesting for an observer (laughs) like you are and, and were. How came that you could observe Stephen Insu. Well, I was invited to do that, and our understanding was that that's what I would do. I think they were surprised that that's all I wanted to do, because they would invite me to say things, and I would not say anything. When I first went there, I had a recorder, an audio recorder, that I would bring with me, and they had cameras in the and microphones in the therapy room, and then they had a TV set and speakers in the observation room. So I would link my audio recorder to the TV set because the audio went through the TV set as well. I'd sit behind the TV set, the very back of the room. I get as far back as I could and still see the therapy room. And it was pitch black in the observation room for obvious reasons. You don't want clients seeing all these people in the other room. So I would sit back there and make sure that the recordings were happening and taking whatever notes I thought I wanted to take. And that was, from my point of view, a full-time job. And some people became kind of fascinated. Steve became kind of fascinated with it. So at one point he would sit behind me and take notes on me taking notes <laughs> and stuff like that. 
But for the most part, I just sat there and it took a while. When they were training new therapists, they had a nine-month program. It was hard for some of the trainees. I was more than intriguing. I think it was hard because I wouldn't talk to them. They'd ask me a question and I wouldn't answer it or I'd just sort of hunch my shoulders like, who knows? And when they would ask me about what my research was about, I would give them sort of vague answers because that's the kind of research I do. That is, it's more, it's inductive. And so they would say, what are your hypotheses? And I'd say, I don't do hypotheses. So what are your goals? I don't have any goals, <laughs> you know, and it's all honest stuff because I just wanted to see what was happening. And then I would figure out what I wanted to say about it. And how did these observations come to influence Steve and well, influence their work? I think probably mostly through Steve and our, not our conversations about observations per se, but about literature. Most of my way of doing sociology is came particularly from ethnomethodology, but related points of view, some symbolic interactionism to some extent, phenomenology, pragmatism, and other kind of social science, philosophical points of view. And Steve was familiar with that. He had a background in sociology and philosophy. And so we could talk about that. And I remember I loaned him a book called Detective Work, which was one of my favorites. It was about the study of how detectives in police departments come to decide whether a crime has happened or not. And it begins with the story of a shooting. A person was shot at a shooting range. And so there's spent shells from guns all over the place. And this person was shot with a gun that was typically used for practice shooting. And so the author goes through what the police did to try to sort out whether one of those shells that's right there in plain sight was the one or not. And so we spent a lot of time I'm talking about that book and its connection to therapy, but not necessarily its connection to any particular case of therapy. And what did you observe then? So as an observer, you have so many choices to make. We talked about choices today earlier. So how did you choose what you observe and what was it what you observed? Oh, that's a good question. It's not unique to solution-focused therapy. I was part of a group at Marquette, a small group of people who do what I do. There were three or four of us all kind of doing the same thing in different areas. I remember one of the people that I worked with studied medical settings, particularly with older people. And we had coffee or lunch or something one day. He'd been feeling kind of down and he was feeling much better. And so we were asking him, what's different? And he said, well, you know, Everything was looking the same. I just, I didn't see anything different in the site that he was studying. And I thought, well, maybe it's time to quit. I've seen it all. And then he said, I decided maybe I should change the way I look. So he said, I sat down and looked through, you know, other points of view and decided that, okay, I was going to try this and see if I could see something new. And he did find something new and continued the study. And that's always been kind of useful to me. So... If I began to see the same thing over and over again, then I would try to look for something different, either observe something different or try to have a different point of view on it. And Eve was particularly helpful to me in many, many different ways. I've talked about this other times, but when she would see clients alone, she would let me go and sit behind the mirror. I'd be the only person back there and observe her working with clients. It's Eve Fliptic, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She would let me observe her in these other different contexts. And her style is different than Steve and Insus. They were doing the same kind of therapy, but a different style. Wally Gingrich was very helpful, again, by watching him. So in that sense, I think I did it 
less by figuring out a different attitude than by just finding different practitioners who did it. You know, Wally's well, the best person I've ever seen with children. Mm. And he really recognized that you, I think you need a different style of solution-focused work with children. And he was very adept at, at modifying, translating solution-focused work to something that children could grasp. What did he do different? He thought like a kid, <laughs> I think. What well, a great gift. To yeah. <laughs> I have two sessions, that, uh, multiple sessions, but two clients that I see as kind of really what Wally was about. One is called the pink elephant, and the other one is called, I think, the green elephant. But these were kids who were being bullied in school on the playground, and they talked about a lot of different things. And in, in both cases, they decided that maybe something that would be worth trying would be to, instead of paying attention, attention to the bully if the child would imagine something else there that was funny and that they could focus their attention on. And one said he'd always found pink elephants funny. And ironically, the other one said green elephants. And so they decided that they would imagine a pink elephant above the bully's head about to sit on him. And so he would pay attention to that. And what he ended, the kid ended up doing was laughing because he found the pink elephant in a pose, a, a kind of crushing pose to be really hilarious, and the bully didn't know what to do with it. And it was a little different with the green elephant, but it's sort of the same thing. And that's what I mean. He thought like a kid. He, he was intrigued by the things that matter in their lives. I mean, there there's good social science evidence for what he did, not then, but now there's a pretty substantial literature on kids' culture, which strongly argues for coming to recognize children as not incomplete adults, but having their own culture uh, with its own kind of values and concerns and so on. And like they value bigness mm-hmm. in a way that adults don't because you want to be big. Right. I think Wally was very good at tapping into that language that is in children's culture, but you have to pay attention <laughs> to, to learn. Paying attention to learn, that's what we just talked about before the podcast. How do we learn and how did you and all the people that were at BFTC learn? And especially through observing and then discussing, talking and also trying out new things. So we think that this is something very, very important, especially when people learn solution focus to also help them to have kind of this learning attitude to also solution focus a learning journey. How did you observe learning there? Well, I mean, there were formal seminars and that sort of thing, but there were people in and out all the time. And so there were conversations from different points of view because in any given week when I would go there, I wouldn't know who would be present. And especially because in the 90s in particular, they began to get a lot of visitors, particularly international visitors, but a lot of visitors from around North America as well. People who weren't going to be there very long and who came and brought really different experiences to it. Even if they didn't declare this is how I understand what you're doing. Their questions involved assumptions and concerns that the team often didn't have. Not that they were opposed to them, they just hadn't thought of them. It wasn't part of their Milwaukee experience. So I think that was important of these kind of discussions and not just with Stephen and Sue but within the group of visitors. The back room could sometimes get really really packed, 15, 20 people and, and other times it wasn't. But if you have 10 people 
people back there, and half of them are from other parts of the world. You know things are going to be said that wouldn't be said otherwise, you know, even if Stephen Insu or Eve didn't say it, there still will be things that are said. So I think that was important. I think this openness to having lots of people in, and that's hard, I think, for everybody to do. But I think easier, and the more I think back on it, I think not enough has been made of what they called the research committee. And I was on the research committee for a year or two, maybe three. And we would meet once a week, a group of us. Steve was on it when I was part of it. And then one or two other, not team members, but people who came a lot were on it. We'd watch tapes and we'd talk about the tapes and what seemed to be useful and what didn't. And then they could try it out. And then we'd have more tapes to watch. And that kind of systematic review, I think, is important. There's a an anthropologist whose work I like very much who studied occupational therapists like me. You know, she did the same thing as me. And in one of her books, she talks about how she has learned that the most effective occupational therapists are the ones who go back and reflect on what they've done and look at what worked and didn't work, that there's this idea of stepping out out mm. and looking back is helpful. Mm. May I ask here a bit more in detail how you looked at the tapes? Like, for instance, did you go through the whole tape and then discuss it or stop on several sections? Did you set a topic before you watched the tape, like, you know, where you would put your observation this time? Or how did that work in this research group? It was variable. And what was it what worked particularly well for you? Yeah. Well, they all worked for me. But it was variable because sometimes Steve would have seen the tape and chose it because of something in particular. And then he would say, let's go here. And we could spend 20 minutes or whatever on just that little segment that really, really interested him. But otherwise, we would do the tapes and we would stop when somebody wanted to stop. And otherwise, it would just keep going. So it was kind of up to the group. And there's value in doing both, stopping it from time to time and seeing the whole thing and then going back. One of the things that I was always surprised about in trainings that I never saw, and I suggested it to Stephen Insu, and they did it a little bit. I don't think they were as crazy about it as I was, but it always struck me that, you know, people would bring tapes to training, tapes that they thought were troublesome, and we would watch them, and the people would make comments on them, and there would be lots of useful comments, but nobody ever asked, how did you get out of that? You know, you'd go to the problem, and the person who brought the tape would describe it, and then other people would talk about it. But the fact is that it's very rare for a therapy session to stay the same. If it gets bad, then it gets better later. And if it's really good, it will probably get a little worse later on. I mean, there's this kind of up and down ebb and flow. So if it's really bad, what happened that got it better? You know, that's where I think you need to see the whole tape to appreciate the ebb and flow of things. But otherwise, you know, there are, I agree, there are times when you want to stop it and really talk about that issue. So that's what we did. And I mean, somebody might say, did you see what just happened? And then we would talk about, I, this wasn't in the research group. I noticed that when I was doing some work with another solution post group in Milwaukee, that there's a therapist, her name is Teresa. And she has this incredible ability to get people to keep talking 
talking. And of course, you don't have to talk to get them to keep talking, but you need to give body language that says, is as if you were talking. And she has this wonderful, really slight movement. I call it the Teresa tilt. <laughs> but it's because people will be talking and she will just get this slight tilt of her head to the right and often a little bit of a smile. And they clearly take that as, please keep going. I'm listening. Mm-hmm. And they do, you know. So, you know, you might be watching something and you go, stop that. I went, see what just happened? You know, there was a tilt of the head there and then look at what the client did. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think there's not a rule. So using those different perspectives really to learn, to discuss and to develop the approach like this. And what I just realized when you say in your story with the Therese tilt, <laughs> this is where microanalysis comes in as such a helpful tool to look at those moments and to replay them and go back and forth and have this specific point of observation and then also choose the point of observation again and right. this is what I love about your story when you see the same and well kind of get bored maybe then to choose a new topic right. of observation and with that develop your practice and keep on being fascinated yeah. by what you're doing yeah yeah and what's going on right Yeah, and I, I think that microanalysis is very useful. I think the criticism I have is we still need to look at whole sessions mm-hmm. and we need to look at multiple sessions. And so there need to be, I think, multiple research strategies that are language focused for getting at all of these things because they're not opposed to one another. Each supplements the other one in various ways. You know, the fact is that you're probably going to see your client again and then again and again, maybe not hundreds of times, but several times. So having some notion about the ebb and flow of interaction across those sessions is very useful. And I think that's a little different interactional strategy than just microanalysis. We're working a lot with people who work in organizations, like leaders, for example. And we just yesterday discussed how important that is also for people in organizations, not only for therapists. For example, if you have a meeting and you do something solution focused in there, and then really to go back and reflect and then improve your practice through this kind of deliberate way of looking at it and learning from it is what really fascinates us with this way of observing and listening and discussing and really learning from that. Gail, at the beginning, I mentioned the CD about emotions. It's a Wittgenstein for therapists, where you discuss the topic of emotions with Steve and a group of people. And I would really love to talk about that a little bit, because there are so many people I hear saying when we teach them, oh, and where are the emotions in the solution-focused approach? So where are the emotions in the solution-focused approach from your point of view? Everywhere. A couple of issues here that I think need to be clarified. One is that there's a substantial literature on emotions as biological. And I think there's value in that literature. It's not written by therapists, but that clearly different emotional experiences are linked to different bodily experiences. And which is first and which is later, of course, is another question that I'm not going to get into, but I'm willing to acknowledge that. The second issue is one that has bothered me for a long time, not just about therapists, but about with social scientists in general. I had a 
conversation with a sociologist at a conference a number of years ago who had given a talk on emotions, and I asked her, is boredom an emotion? And she got this concerned look on her face and thought about it and finally said no. And I said, then please explain this to me. I go to a lot of lectures on the campus, and when I go to one that's really boring, which happens fairly often, if it gets too boring, I start looking around the room, trying to identify possible weapons that I might use to kill myself. Or if I have a pen, I unscrew it, take it apart, put it back together again. My administrative assistant used to laugh about that because we went to a meeting that I was really bored at, and I was doing that, and the spring took off. and flew all the way across the room. And I mentioned that to Steve once, and he said he did somewhat the same thing, which is that he began to watch the person and tried to identify every DSM category that he thought could apply to that person. And he said, it's the only time I ever get to use my training. Uh, Now, that's an emotion. It's not a pleasant emotion, but it's an emotion. You know, you can be bored to tears. You can be bored to whatever. It doesn't have to be fear. It doesn't have to be a love. It doesn't have to be all of these other things that we call emotions. Emotions are part of life, and in particular, they're part of language. So if you're worried about emotions, then you need to worry about what's connected to emotions as opposed to emotions per se, because if the biological people are right, then you need to worry about something that's going on in the body. If I'm right, you need to worry about something that's going on in language and in the context of the setting. And if I'm right, then we can see that emotions are manageable. There's a literature in sociology on the management of emotions and how people can intentionally or inadvertently talk themselves into alternative feelings. There's a book by a sociologist at Berkeley who studied airline stewardesses and the things that they do to keep themselves from throwing coffee on passengers and that sort of thing. And they learn this and they share it as a part of their work group and do it, but they're not alone. I mean, she also did a study of bill collectors and how they manage the anger that they encountered in order to keep their some semblance of a desirable identity to themselves. And I had a colleague at Marquette who only taught statistics and research methods, two of the most boring subjects from my point of view that were ever invented. That's the only thing he taught for decades. And one day I said, how do you do this? And he said, it's really easy. He said, when I walk into class, I'm bored to tears and I don't want to be there. But as soon as I start talking, then I began to get interested in it because I was once interested in it, you know, and I have this way of talking that generates that interest. And then when the class is over, I'm bored to tears again. But he said, I have something else to do that's interesting. So I, it's not like I spend all my days bored. And then, and it's right. I mean, I taught for 40 years and that's right. You know, you have your stock of jokes and you like some of them. And so you look forward to telling them <laughs> and you have all of these things, little tricks that you do. And some of them are fun. Even if you've done them a hundred times before, they're still fun, you know, and you kind of get going with it. And then when it's over, suddenly that goes away and you move to something else. So you're a human being. Okay. And one part of that is emotions. And I think that's what we see in the solution focus session when people start talking about their problems, for example, how well they change in their body posture. And as soon as uh, we ask them about preferred future, how they get bigger and eyes lighten up 
up and you can see these emotions connected with what they're thinking and what they're saying. Right, yeah. So emotions very much embedded in everyday language that they use. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So no need to really tap into their emotions when the problem occurs or something like yeah. that. Well, I mean, you can talk about emotions if you want to. It's not like I'm saying we should never, ever talk about emotions. But remember, it's talk. You're not getting at emotions in any sense of the essence of it. I mean, I don't know what the essence of an emotion would be. So if you're particularly happy today and I say, gee, you're really happy, what's that like? You can describe it for me and that's fine, but you're talking. You're using a language that makes social something that you were otherwise experiencing privately. You're listening to the Simply Focus podcast with Alfie Cherney and Dominic Godat, your podcast for a life in joy and ease. Hi there, we just came back to our RV and realized that they did not record the full interview with Gail Miller. So we got in touch with Gail again, and unfortunately we couldn't make up another meeting. And so Gail invited us to give you his challenge of the week in our words. Gail is such a good observer and listener, and this is what the podcast is all about. So the challenge of the week is also about observing and listening. So Gail's invitation and Gail's challenge to you is to go to a meeting you're really interested in. And instead of talking, just observing. So be silent, just listen and observe. Observe who says what and who responds in what way and how the conversation goes on in this way. So it's about observing and listening and seeing what you can learn. And please let us know how this challenge worked for you and also what inspired you with this podcast, what you learned from it and well, what you particularly liked about that. So please go and comment on www.sfontour.com slash simplyfocuspodcast and then go to episode number 35. You know, your voice matters and what might be inspiring, what might be interesting, what might be valuable for you might be valuable for someone else as well and might even support to keep on going for someone else with their solution-focused journey. What we found especially interesting was the systematic review of the research team and how they discussed cases, how they learned from observing. And we are wondering how we can do that in our work that we do, how you might do that in your work that you do, and how we can promote that even more promote to record own videos to share them with others to discuss them with others and to curiously keep on learning and going your own journey and learning from videos we are about to start an online conference on solution-focused leadership in german language we'll start on november the 5th so if you speak German, if you're interested in solution-focused leadership and want to learn from watching videos, from learning from them, from inspiring each other, from being in contact with others who lead in such a way, then go to www.impulskonferenz.com and sign up for the Impulskonferenz für Lösungsfokussierte Führung. Thank you very much for listening to the Simply Focus podcast and we are looking forward to seeing, hearing you next week. Bye. Goodbye. Wow. What a great episode again. 
Do you like the Simply Focus podcast? Well, help Elfie and Dominic spread the word. Give the Simply Focus podcast an excellent rating on iTunes and Google Play and other platforms. Then don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And share your thoughts and inspirations with others by commenting at www.sfontour.com slash podcast. Then go to this episode. This was the Simply Focus podcast with Alfie Cherney and Dominic Odat, your podcast for a life in joy and ease.